Welcome to episode 45 of Justice with John Carpe, the podcast from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. I'm the show's producer, Kevin Steele, and I'm here with your host, John Carpe, who is the founder and president of the Center. Governments across Canada are pushing second lockdown measures based on the rising number of cases. They're not saying much about these cases, and so it is reasonable to conclude, in my opinion, that they are ramping up another campaign of fear, and not incidentally the Canadian media, with a few small exceptions, is right there with them, not asking the kind of questions that need to be asked, like, what kind of test or tests are you using to determine the number of rising cases? How reliable are those tests? How reliable are your diagnoses of death due to the virus, and what kind of test determines that? How effective are your lockdown measures based on past performance? For instance, during the first wave, what kind of harm are your actions causing, and are these government lockdown measures causing more harm than they are preventing? In other words, the fundamental rights and freedoms of Canadians are being severely restricted as they have never been restricted before, without those restrictions being demonstrably justified as governments are required to do by law according to the Canadian Constitution. So let's get to it, John. Start us off by telling us what's happening in Manitoba. Well, the government is cracking down, making all social gatherings illegal, uh, social contacts reduced to your own household only. No religious gatherings, no cultural gatherings, that all has to be done online only. So effectively, churches are completely closed in Manitoba, mosques, synagogues, other houses of worship. Northern Manitoba travel is discouraged, although not banned outright. Uh, retail businesses, we're back to this, you know, big subsidy for Walmart and Superstore by uh, having politicians decide which services are critical or essential. Uh, groceries and pharmacies can stay open. But in fact, what happens is uh, you've got people will still buy clothing or they'll buy paint if they want to paint, uh, you know, part of their house when they're locked down. And so, uh, you know, the paint stores get shut down and the clothing stores get shut down, but Walmart stays open and people still buy whatever they need, but they're forced into one location, which actually concentrates more people into uh, the Walmarts and superstores and other grocery stores. And it's uh, very punitive towards small businesses. And I, I don't see the science behind that. Uh, you're not going to reduce the spread. Uh, whether, whether that's even possible, I'll get into that in a minute. Um, in Manitoba, uh, hair salons, barbers, uh, manicures, pedicures, aesthetic services, uh, personal services of all kind must close completely. So that's going to throw all those people out of work. You know, I'd have more respect for the chief medical officers and the politicians if they took a temporary 100% pay cut or even a 50% pay cut in solidarity with the people that they're pushing into unemployment. I uh, don't see that happening anytime soon. But I, I wonder if their attitude would be a bit different if they weren't getting their own paycheck and maybe they suddenly had to shift down to uh, $2,000 a month uh, for, for curb. Uh, gyms and fitness centers must close. Uh, do these politicians in Manitoba and elsewhere, have they thought about the impact on public health? Or do they believe that public health consists solely of not getting COVID, which is what the current public policy seems to be based on? Uh, a lot of people really depend on going to the gyms and fitness centers for their 
not just their physical health, but their mental health. You go work out at the gym and all of a sudden you've got a better perspective on life and you're better able to cope and manage. And, you know, it, it does good things for our bodies and our minds. And of course, all of these measures uh, are deleterious or harmful for mental health. So the underlying premise is that, you know, the only, we're just a clump of cells. The only thing that matters is our bodies. And the only important thing is to not die of COVID. And if mental health goes down the toilet, uh, which it has to, to a huge extent uh, all across Canada and all across the world, strangely, it seems that the, the chief medical officers and the doctors uh, seem to regard that as perfectly acceptable. It's like, well, who cares if your mental health goes down the toilet because you can't connect with friends and you're locked up in your home. So uh, restaurants must close uh, all recreational activities, all sports facilities, Casinos, museums, galleries, libraries, movie theaters, concert halls in Manitoba must close as of the day after Remembrance Day, the day when we remember the veterans who fought for our freedoms. And our freedoms include the freedom to connect with your friends, to not meet anymore, up with who, buddy. not anymore, no, to connect with people that you want to connect with is a mm-hmm. fundamental freedom, which dictatorships and totalitarian regimes uh, take away from people. So these are the, some of this stuff is identical to what uh, totalitarian regimes have done and continue to do. I mean, I'm sure in a lot of these restrictions are in place in North Korea on a permanent basis. And now, um, now that we're eight months into this, we have to look at these as permanent restrictions uh, or continuous ongoing threat. Well, they, uh, yeah, they they declared a state of emergency back in March, March twentieth, I think, back then. Have they done that again? Are they using the emergency powers to do it this time? Or are they just basically throwing it out there that this is what we're going to do and we don't need to pass an emergency act or anything like that? Well, you hit the nail on the head. This is what forthcoming court actions are about: is okay. can you just have a medical dictatorship where the where one doctor who you know, doesn't even have unanimous support from uh, from all the doctors because there's more and more doctors are speaking out publicly against lockdown measures and, and the mm-hmm. harm that they cause. But we're effectively, we have a medical dictatorship where one doctor takes away our human rights and human dignity and fundamental charter freedoms with no accountability to anybody. Uh, I would, you know, of course, I would disagree with with these destructive and toxic and deadly lockdown measures, if they were properly passed into law by elected representatives, I would still oppose them as unjustified charter violations. However, at least there would be a good proper system in place where you have elected representatives that are passing laws that are taking away our freedoms. What we have now, it's almost irrelevant. Whether we have a state of emergency or not, uh, the one in Alberta ended at the end of June and we still have uh, you know, Premier Dina Henshaw with her lovely assistant, Jason, uh, making the laws for the province when there's no state of emergency. It's uh, it's untenable legally and constitutionally. And, you know, even with the courts being still not fully reopened, we're going to have to be proceeding with court actions. Right. I don't know whether you saw that video by Lord Sumption uh, out of England giving his analysis of how the government proceeded over there. But the one sentence that really stuck out to me was he was talking about how the government was operating. And when he pointed out the timeline in there bringing in certain measures, he said, it was all bluff. 
In other words, it was just bluffing until they could pass. And they apparently waited until a long weekend or a holiday shutdown so they could pass this without debate. But until then, they announced the measures. The measures were not in force, but they pretended like they were. So legally, they had no force, but they were just bluffing. In fact, the police said, oh, now we're going to enforce it, but they had no authority to do it, right? So I thought that was interesting. It sounds like maybe that's what we're getting to in Canada. Like governments are just basically bluffing everybody without passing any kind of law uh, and justifying it against the Constitution. I can't see it anything but a bluff. Anyways, that's my non-lawyer I, analysis. I cannot, <laughs> I cannot disagree with you, Kevin. It's, it's not a tenable uh, situation. It's not a desirable situation that any country or province should, should wish to be in. So the justification in Manitoba, uh, 241 new cases. Oh, here we go again. Mm. Uh, 241. How many of those, and it seems that neither the government nor the media is telling us, of those 241 new cases in Manitoba, how many of those people were perfectly healthy? How many were mildly sick? Maybe just a little bit of a cough or a sore throat, but not in need of hospitalization. How many were so sick that they needed to go into the hospital? Of the ones who needed to go into the hospital, how many were so sick that they needed to go into ICU? And then last but not least, how many deaths? Well, the deaths are reported on. Uh, there are now still fewer than 100 COVID-19 deaths. I think the number now is at, at 80 or 85, possibly 90. We're fewer than 100 deaths in the context uh, in a province where last year, 11,266 people died, which you would expect in a province of about 1.3 million people. Every year, there's 11,000 people that die. So we have, you know, 100 people uh, dying, less than 100 people dying of, of COVID, and we've got 11,100 and something people dying of other causes. And the alarmism is just disgusting. And when you fail to provide context, you are, in fact, misleading people and you are fear-mongering by screaming headlines about new cases without any relevant information as to uh, how many of those cases actually involve sick people and how many of those sick people need to be hospitalized and how many of the hospitalized need to be in ICU. You won't find it on, in, uh, you won't find it on the CBC, CTV, uh, nor will the chief medical officers uh, break those numbers down in many of the cases. Well, in that case, I mean, you really can't blame the media if they aren't being provided with the number. You know, I mean, it's they're just failing to ask for it. I guess uh, I should I should qualify. I'll qualify what I said a minute ago. In some jurisdictions, the uh, chief medical officers are also talking about hospitalizations uh, and and ICU usage. But there, those numbers show that we have no reason to fear because in Alberta, for example, we've got close to eight thousand five hundred. I think it's 8,483, but rounded to the nearest 500, we've got 8,500 hospital beds in Alberta. Currently, we've got roughly 200 people in ICU leaving, or 200 people in hospital because of COVID, leaving 8,300 hospital beds for more COVID patients and for, of course, every other, you know, the... The, the people that are dying from the other 99% of the deaths that the regular are taking business place, of, uh, kind yeah. of the regular, the non-COVID, you know, the 99% of your, your hospital usage. Mm -hmm. So there's plenty of room, even if there were uh, more people that get off twi twice as many, three times as many, four times as many, five times as many people in 
hospital because of COVID, and you still have plenty of beds available, uh, the ICU capacity in Alberta uh, can be very quickly ramped up to 1,000 uh, ICU spaces if necessary. Where are we at in Alberta? Uh, 15 or 18 or 20 uh, COVID patients in ICU. Uh, out of a potential 1,000 ICU beds, 20 out of 1,000. So we've got 980 ICU spaces left where there's no cause for panic. It's almost getting to this point where I do not want to go into conspiracy theories, and I won't, but it, it almost makes you wonder why why the fear-mongering when you've got in Alberta, and it's, it's very similar in other provinces, you've got 20 uh, COVID patients in ICU, and you've got the uh, 1,000 ICU beds. I think the ICU beds is at you know 300, but they can they can quite quickly uh, escalate up that. They can quite quickly ramp up the capacity to a thousand ICU. So you got 20 out of a thousand in use. So that is two out of a hundred. So we've got two percent of ICU capacity used by COVID patients. Why the why the hype? Why the fear mongering? It makes you start makes makes my mind start moving into directions where I don't want my mind to go. I want to believe that this is all done with the best of intentions and good faith. That's what I want to believe. But when I see this kind of fear-mongering, um it uh it does beggar belief. Yes, I understand. And listen, you just give me a visual signal when you want me to go into conspiracy theories cuz I'll go there in a heartbeat. <laughs> well, no we're problem. not going we're not going there today. Okay. Uh, you know, the door is open, but now Manitoba's lockdown, I don't know to what extent it's being driven by our uh, Prime Minister Trudeau in Ottawa, who is doing his own fear-mongering. And I'm looking here at a CBC News story. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau publicly called on the country's premiers and mayors to, quote, do the right thing, quote, and impose restrictions to counter the recent case in the recent rise in COVID-19. Cases, here we go yeah. again, cases okay. of mm-hmm. perfectly healthy people. Uh, we have no idea how many are contagious or not. Uh, that's something chief chief medical officers are not releasing, and they're not releasing it because they don't know how many of these uh, people are contagious or not. So Trudeau a lot of that, says... Uh, well, a lot of that pressure from Trudeau in the stories that I saw uh, was aimed at Alberta. Like, you know, Jason Kenney. I mean, he's the, he's the one standing athwart... Uh, the bridge and yelling, you know, halt at the moment. So, well, kudos to Jason Kenny for remarks that he's made in the past week to the effect that we have to take into account the crippling effect on the lives and livelihoods of people. Uh, he mentioned that you know restaurant businesses, many restaurants, many. Uh, he referred to fifteen thousand restaurants in Alberta. Many of them are on the verge of bankruptcy. Many of them depend on the upcoming Christmas season, which of course gets celebrated earlier and earlier because, you know, we all do Christmas in November to avoid the rush in December. But the restaurants are heading into Christmas season where there's a lot of companies will go to, uh, you know, they'll have a a Christmas party at at a restaurant or a staff, a Christmas lunch for staff, uh, that sort of thing. And Jason Kenney, to his credit, acknowledged that these businesses are hurting. They're on the verge of bankruptcy. He even said 
I, I wonder if he's reading my columns and borrowing content, but you know, please go ahead and do that. He even mentioned uh, what I've said many times that for a lot of people, uh, if you're not fortunate enough to have a public sector job with a very generous pension and with you know collecting a full paycheck during lockdowns, if you're not so fortunate, for a lot of people, the business is their life's savings. And what thousands and thousands of Canadians uh, have been doing, uh, in you know, in the in, in the last decades, in the last century, is you, you work really hard, you build up a business, and then when you're 65 or 60 or 55 or 70, whenever you want to retire, you sell your business and you get you know maybe a million dollars or something, which you know these days is not what it used to be, but something that can give you a, a comfortable retirement or contribute towards a comfortable retirement. So you sell your business for a million dollars or for $5 million or for a half million dollars. That's your retirement. You're not so privileged as to be a public sector employee and getting a very generous pension from the time from the day that you quit work until the day that you die. You're not in that category. So you're counting on being able to sell this business, which now politicians and chief medical officers have destroyed your business. You cannot sell it for uh, what you were previously counting on being able to sell it for. So Jason even uh, alluded to that, how a person's business is their their livelihood and their life savings and their retirement. And so for governments to uh, casually destroy businesses in the name of stopping one virus whose death toll is, you know, 1%, 1.5% of total deaths in, in, in every province, it's, uh, it's, it's ludicrous. Right. It's yeah, and he was getting some pressure from uh, local doctors as well. I don't. I think you saw that story where initially uh, they reported that seventy-one doctors had signed a letter to him, and then it was seventy-four. And then I saw today the same letter in uh, referenced in the Toronto Star in a Canadian press story, where they had amplified the number of doctors up to one hundred and seventy-four. So. Kudos they have a ways to go before they get up to the 45,000 doctors and epidemiologists and infectious disease experts and immunologists. Maybe the story uh, has to go to the National Post before it the well, the, goes up. <laughs> the, the, great, the Great Barrington uh, Declaration, which quite sensibly advocates for focused protection of the vulnerable, uh, now has 45,000 signatories of medical doctors and public health experts. So there's 45,000 people that have, uh, 45,000 doctors and medical experts have signed the Great Barrington Declaration. And I, uh, I read the Great Barrington Declaration. I didn't read this letter anywhere to Jason Kenney because I couldn't find it. It was not posted in any of the stories. There was no link to it. I cannot find out who signed it. All the quotes in the story were anonymous. I'm glad you brought it up because actually before I leave Trudeau behind, mm -hmm. um, he says, uh, Trudeau says, I would hope that no leader in our country is easing public health vigilance because they feel pressure not to shut down businesses or slow down our economy. I understand that worry, but let me tell you, that's how we end up with businesses going out of business and the economy damaged even more. Beating COVID is the only way to protect our economy. Okay, this is absurd because the virus has had zero impact on business. The um, Actually, I take that back. On a voluntary basis, because some people were, uh, before lockdown measures were imposed, some, pe some people were already staying away from stores and restaurants. Uh, so you had some loss of business, uh, as in Sweden, you know, some of their uh, 
they had a, a small reduction in, in economic growth and a, a small increase in unemployment. So apart from lockdown measures, yes, you could honestly and truly say that the virus had an impact on the economy. But the impact of the virus on the economy is negligible. It's minimal. It's next to nothing. What is killing the economy is the lockdown measures and the ongoing fear-mongering that the uh, politicians and chief medical officers and doctors in Alberta are uh, are fomenting. Mm-hmm. They, so what when they Trudeau says beating... For, oh, sorry, no, go ahead. I was going to no, say what they're advocating for is some kind of circuit break or something like this. They want a two-week lockdown without offering any sort of evidence that the first lockdown worked. I mean, i bit confused how they can sort of justify asking for something that, you know, they really have no idea if it's going to work or not. So anyway, it's exactly, it's exactly that it's, yeah, they, they talk about a a circuit breaker, which is a sharp two week lockdown to slow the spread of COVID-19. And, you know, this, the, the underlying assumption here, as far as I can tell is that, is that we can stop the spread of a virus entirely. That's the underlying assumption that, you know, somehow, somehow, if we just punish ourselves enough, if we throw enough people into unemployment and poverty, if we rake up enough debt, we can somehow stop the spread of the virus entirely. Because that is now the goal, even though they're not using those words. When they talk about slowing the spread, well, think about that. Uh, 90% of us uh, are not harmed by it. It poses no threat to us whatsoever. And then you've got 10% of people who are vulnerable, and that would be elderly people who are already very sick with one or more uh, health conditions, and some people under 60 that might be immune compromised, in which case they're threatened not just by COVID, but they're threatened by all kinds of things. So that's also not an excuse to destroy the economy uh, because immune compromised people are, are with us all the time, COVID or no COVID, and they're threatened by all kinds of things. So when Trudeau says beating COVID is the only way to protect our economy, that's just not true. It's the lockdowns that are destroying the economy, and it's the the restoration of our charter freedoms that are going to bring back prosperity, not to mention the human dignity of being able to have a few friends over for dinner, which Mm. we're now being robbed of. Right, yeah. So I guess at this point, if you could say the lockdowns are the things actually causing the harm, then I guess we can assign the blame to the politicians that are doing this. So 100%. Okay, good. All right. And I have yet to hear politicians explain how the initial lockdowns, which have never been lifted entirely, uh, but how these lockdowns have saved lives. Yes, it's possible, but that's speculation. It's not science. Conjecture and surmising is not science. I've asked the question of, of chief medical officers and politicians, you know, how many lives have been saved by the lockdowns? They don't come up with any numbers. They don't come up with any explanation. It's pure conjecture, hypotheses, speculation. And there's no scientific evidence that lockdowns have saved any lives. Again, it might be true. It may Mm. be true. But then the important question is how many people have the lockdowns killed? And uh, the report is coming out later this month in November, uh, Justice Center report, it's going to take uh, take a stab at trying to answer that question in part by looking at a small number of criteria. Uh, you know, a, a, a full report would be a a big book or or a whole encyclopedia set if you wanted to really canvas all of the lockdown harms. But we'll try with uh, with a few of the factors. Right. Well, maybe these uh, medical 
officers are doing as the politicians might be doing, and that is bluffing. I really like that uh, word right now. I mean, I'm not speculating on motives. I'm just saying maybe they're bluffing. And that's a good segue into the tests, if you want to talk about that now, but uh, or if you've got something else to add on the politicians. Well, you've. it's interesting that um, in Alberta, the chief medical officer, Dina Hinshaw, is now uh, in in recent days, for the first time, as far as I know, is talking about the lockdown harms, uh, something she was completely silent on in March and April and May and June and July and August. Uh, she didn't utter a peep about how hurtful, harmful, destructive, toxic, and deadly her lockdown measures are. Uh, and now, when she's making public announcements, she's talking about a balanced approach. Uh, I don't think that's what we're getting, but at least she's talking about it, which is a good step. And she's actually acknowledging publicly that there are downsides and harms coming from the lockdowns, which before, uh, I don't think she was really getting it, but now she's talking about it. So that's a, a positive move. And Premier Jason Kenney talking about the harms of lockdowns and the importance of not fully reimposing them. Again, they've never been lifted, but not fully reimposing them. Uh, it's wonderful to hear at least one Premier that is uh, is talking about that. There you go. Again. I want to get into the 70 doctors. We okay. touched on it. So you have 70 doctors. We have media quoting from a letter. Or 74 they, or 174. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> growing number of anonymous doctors uh, for a letter that we're not allowed to see. But the media will quote from the letter. So they got the letter. If they're quoting from the letter, they got it. Why aren't yeah, they they're, publishing it? I guess they're honoring some uh, condition of anonymity that was uh, provided by the uh, the initial signatories. See, when I see, when I see that kind of anonymity in a story, and knowing uh, you know the rules that I used to operate under when I was a journalist, uh, that would never have been published uh, it, in the rules that I was working under. Uh, I, I red flags you up immediately. In fact, I think I was emailing you yesterday when I saw the story. I thought, okay, this is odd. Let's go look at it in other publications. Same thing in other publications. No link to the letter. No mention of anybody's names anywhere. So uh, what's up with that? Uh, you know. Well, let me quote from uh, what the media are allowing us to see. This is a quote supposedly from, from this letter. I, I don't doubt that it is. I think there is a letter. I think the media are quoting from it. Mm -hmm. But as you mentioned, by, by journalistic standards – uh, this is pretty shoddy journalism where you give headline news to uh, to right. some document signed by uh, anonymous doctors. Right. But I'll quote from it. Quote, there have been advances in the care of critically ill COVID-19 patients based on research over the last nine months that have resulted in significant reductions in mortality and time to recover. However, if the rate of COVID-19 spread continues, the consequences to the people of Alberta will be catastrophic, the, quote, medical professionals, quote, said. Uh, if this rate of increase continues unabated, our acute healthcare system will be overrun in the near future. When did you hear that before? Boy, it's we heard that in time. March and April. Oh, yeah, this is eight months ago. The, the acute care system is going to be overtaken by COVID-19 patients. Well, that's what we were told in March to justify stripping away our charter charter freedoms to, to move, to travel, to associate, to assemble, to worship. Massive violations of our charter freedoms because the hospital system was going to be overwhelmed. It never happened. Now, the media story goes on to say there are 192 Albertans in hospital. I, I, 
I take that to mean 192 COVID patients, because I, I think in a province of 4.4 million people, there's probably more than 192 Albertans in hospitals. So uh, I'll take that to mean COVID patients. 192 COVID patients in hospital in Alberta, including 39 in intensive care units. So we have about 8,500 hospital beds, 192 Albertans in hospital, leaving 8,300 beds available for uh, more COVID patients and for the 99% of patients that are uh, dying of things other than COVID. And then 39 in the ICU unit. Again, we have uh, we have capacity of 1,000 that we can quickly ramp it up to. Current capacity, 2,300. Uh, so we're still down at... Um, you know, just a tiny fraction of ICU beds that are in use. And yet we should be very, very afraid. Mm -hmm. Okay. Why should we? Now there is one doctor that, uh, there is one doctor that um, uh, went public and, you know, uh, kudos to Dr. Darren Markland for going public with comments and actually uh, having, allowing media to mention his name uh, in, um, in, in the media. Oh, it says here, Markland, this is from a media story. Markland is one of many doctors calling for a temporary shutdown of schools and non-essential businesses. Uh, again, who gets to decide what's non-essential, right? Mm -hmm. it, it's code for punishing small businesses and, uh, you know, enabling Walmart and Superstore uh, and other big stores to uh, to get 100% of the business, which I think is grossly unfair. Can I just jump uh, in there? I think that story is from November 8th, and uh, the next day, November 9th, is when the letter came out. Just wanted to okay. sort of put the timeline in there. Anyways, Markland says? So he says, um, if cases continue to climb, other services could be put at risk. <laughs> right. So let's definitely inflict harm by shutting them all down. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. where, where's the logic in that? And there's a quote from Markland there. Uh, the 20 year old who gets in a car accident may not be able to get in ICU because it is already full of COVID patients. Okay. This is blatant fear mongering when the fact is you've got, what's the number I mentioned a minute ago, 30, uh, 39 people, 39 COVID patients in intensive care units. Right. So, uh, 39 out of a thousand spaces. And uh, even if it's a current 300, again, the, the province has capacity to increase the number of ICU units up to 1000. But even currently, if you've got 300 ICU patient uh, spaces, so you've got less than 10% in use. And here you have a fear mongering doctor threatening people that if their 20 year old gets into a car accident, he's not going to be able to get medical care. Why? Because, because uh, you know, 10% of ICU spaces are being used by COVID patients. Uh, and then he's complaining about this. He's probably a big fan of having canceled the 22,000 surgeries. Well, actually, uh, which have, I want to just which have jump killed in people. There. Yeah, I just want to jump in there because, I mean, once I saw that story, I did a, just a, a quick search and I found out that he was in a June 6th, 2020 story in Global News. Uh, <clears throat> he posted a picture of ventilators just sort of parked there as a stark, as the headline says, ICU doctor sends stark reminder about COVID-19 with tweets showing Alberta ventilators. So he has a history of uh, drawing attention to, um, I don't know, what? <laughs> panic? He likes to draw well, attention the, to panic. 
I I remember vividly that one of the justifications for the lockdowns was that there weren't enough ventilators, so therefore we needed to destroy livelihoods and throw millions of people into unemployment and poverty and despair because there weren't enough ventilators. And then uh, a month or two later, it's like, ah, these things aren't even all that useful in most cases, and we've got way too many of them. Right. right? So again, the, the justification's gone. Why do we have the lockdown measures in place when supposedly this was because there weren't enough ventilators to handle the incoming wave of COVID patients? This is why we should give up our, our human dignity and human rights and our fundamental charter freedoms to uh, make sure that there's enough ventilators to go around. And then when that thing collapses like a house of cards, and it's like, well, actually, we've got more than enough ventilators. Well, okay, so can we get rid of the lockdowns? Oh, no, 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 no. We, we still need to be very, very afraid. Yes. Well, what the story here from June 6th says, uh, quote, Dr. Darren Markland, an intensive care physician and nephronologist, nephrologist, which is, I think, a kidney specialist at the Royal Alec, wanted to visually remind people of the risk of COVID-19 that COVID-19 still poses. So he sent a tweet showing the stockpile of ventilators at his hospital. Well, that's one way. Well, I guess, <laughs> what does that mean? They had enough of them? Or uh, uh, let's get into some of this. Uh, I want to know. dive into this case of stuff. What the chief medical officers in every province are not telling us is how many of those so-called cases are asymptomatic and how many were mildly ill. We do know, however, from the number of hospitalizations, which is a, a, a tiny, tiny number in relation to the huge number of cases, uh, we, we can, we, we know that, you know, 90 something percent of these cases are people who are asymptomatic or perhaps some of them are mildly ill. The numbers that we actually do need to look at if we buy into the need of preserving hospital capacity, we have to look at hospitalization rates and they are tiny. Uh, the other thing the chief medical officers, uh, what I don't hear them talking about is the false positives where um, public in the New York Times and the National Post, there have been stories with doctors and, and other medical experts that are saying that the uh, polymerase chain reaction, the PCR test... Uh, can have false positives as high as ninety percent. So I'd like to know what's the uh, what is the rate of false positives in British Columbia, Alberta, Ontario, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Quebec, the Atlantic provinces. What is the rate of false positives, and why aren't they talking about that? The other thing that they don't mention, although you can look it up, but you really have to dig for it, is the huge number of tests that are now taking place every day. We're testing way more people than what we were in March and April. So the more tests uh, that are being done, the more so-called cases that you find. And the other thing the media typically don't cover, but you have to really dig for it, is how many hospital beds are actually being used up by COVID patients. Uh, another vital point that the media are not reporting on is that there is no second wave of COVID deaths. That's not my opinion. That's the government's data. Anybody can look it up. The wave of COVID deaths was in April and May in, in all the Canadian provinces. And since May, we have not had, and we are currently not having a second wave of COVID deaths. But we're getting these huge numbers of tests, huge number of, of, of cases. What this suggests is that the virus has made its way through the population 
has already killed most of the people that it will kill. Uh, we'll kill a few more. I mean, we're getting uh, uh, in Alberta, I believe in the past week, there were uh, another 10 or so COVID deaths. Very sad, very tragic. And so were the other 490 non-COVID deaths. Because in Alberta, 27,000 deaths per year every week. There's 500 people that die in Alberta of cancer and heart disease and emphysema, suicides, alcoholism, drug overdoses, you name it. 500 people dying every week. And yet the media is going to hype 10 deaths when the appropriate context takes all the legs out of the fear-mongering. If it's normal in Alberta that 500 people die every week, and it is normal, why is it a front-page headline when there's 10 out of the 500 people are COVID deaths? You know, if you wanted to take the single biggest number, it would probably be cancer is, uh, as I understand it, is the number one killer in Canada. Presumably, that's also true in Alberta. Cancer and heart disease together are, you know, huge chunks of this... Why is it not a front page headline that, uh, you know, 100 people in Alberta died of cancer in the past week mm. or, or, or 200 or whatever that number is? Right. Oh, I just want to back up a second here. I did find out that there was a story uh, giving attribution to the creation of the letter to Dr. Noel Gibney, uh, Professor Emeritus of Medicine at the U of A. Markland did sign the letter, so he says, in his Twitter feed. Uh, so... Um, well, isn't that nice? So we've got we've got two out of the unknown number that uh, are willing to identify themselves publicly. Uh, both you of them are kidney have... specialists, by the way. Just out of coincidence. Oh, so. okay. So they must be real experts in viruses and ep epidemiology. I, I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not saying they can't speak to it, but um, now people are going to say, "Well, John, you're not a doctor," but you know. Any literate person can look at the government data and can see that there is no second wave of COVID deaths. Anybody can look up the data and see that, uh, you know, in Canada, for example, you have uh, 300,000 people died in Canada in the year ending, for the statistical purposes, in the year ending June 30th of 2020. Okay, 300,000. That means that every month, 25,000 Canadians die per month. So we've got 300,000 deaths every year. We've got COVID deaths just over 10,000. So you got 10,000 Canadians died of COVID, 290,000 Canadians died of other causes. All 300,000 deaths are sad and tragic. They leave behind them a trail of grief. And uh, all of these deaths are sad. Why is it that these 10,000 COVID deaths uh, somehow are on the front page of of every uh, of every media publication, right? When you've got two hundred ninety thousand deaths from other causes, and people would say, "Well, it's because uh, because COVID's preventable." Well, uh, clearly, even with lockdowns, you know, we've had COVID ravage the nursing homes and kill uh, elderly people who are already very sick who are in a nursing home. So we've been utterly unsuccessful in stopping the COVID with or without lockdowns, it seems that the, the virus will go through society. And I think this might be the the, the root problem of it all is this uh, assumption that somehow 
we human beings, you know, now that we're so advanced, because it's the year 2020, and we've got all this, you know, all this technology that we never had before, we've got advances in medical science that, that didn't exist 50 years ago or 10 years ago. So somehow we now have the capacity to stop a virus from making its way through a, a country, a province, a city. And I would challenge these medical doctors to give me one example in human history where a country succeeded in stopping the spread of a virus. Yeah. And I think you can succeed. How about, how you about can in succeed last in year? How about in the yeah. last year? Don't have to go with human history. Just go better than the last year where we had severe lockdowns and it didn't seem to work at all. Seemed to have brought it back twice as hard. Or That was interesting because, I mean, I was listening to somebody, uh, I think it was Michael Yeadon, former head of Pfizer, uh, who's been a real skeptic of the pandemic. He was saying that all the other coronavirus uh, coronaviruses that have gone through, they've never had a second wave. None of them had second waves, if you recall the MERS and I think the other SARS virus. But even, yeah. even if it does, I mean, the fact is you get uh, you get a particularly the, – these viruses are there every year. Every year they kill lots of people. Every year the, the biggest group of deaths – is elderly people who are already sick with uh, cancer, emphysema, heart disease, whatever. And you've got the same stats now with, with, with COVID. Again, not my opinion. The government data tells us that 90%, 95%, depending on jurisdiction, of COVID deaths are amongst people that have at least one, often two, and in the majority of the time, three or more serious illnesses. So people who are already elderly, already very sick, they're already immune compromised, and then a virus comes around and it kills a lot of these people. Again, very sad. Death is a sad part of life. How different is COVID from other years? Well, it is not anywhere close to the big Spanish flu, 1918 to 1920. And there, there was a second wave, which was more deadly. Um, the Spanish flu killed 17 million at least. Uh, most historians say 20 some historians say 50, some historians say 100 million people. It was so vicious. And it, that that one actually w was killing young, strong, healthy adults in their 20s and 30s and 40s. It was just across the board. If you got the Spanish flu, uh, you could be dead within 24 hours. Yeah, they and were this saying is at a time about that, about the Spanish flu. Uh, they don't really know if that was one or several viruses. That's the thing. They don't really base you know, they really didn't have the equipment to uh, to make that judgment now. So, you know, even there, when you talk about a second wave, it might not have been a second wave. It might have been another virus. They just... Might have been brand new. Yeah. But, and this this gets back to the, the question, are people capable of uh, stopping the spread of a virus or are we only capable of minimizing the damage by protecting the vulnerable? And hence, you go back to the Great Barrington Declaration where... You have top medical professionals uh, with no political affiliation. They describe themselves as coming from the left and the right. And now 45,000 signatures from medical doctors and uh, infectious disease specialists and, uh, and, and so on. They're saying targeted protection. So you, uh, you have, say, 10% of the population that's actually threatened by COVID that should be afraid of getting it. So... If you want to protect grandma, protect grandma. So communicate with her using only Skype and Zoom and telephone. Or if you see her in person, meet her only outdoors or stay six feet away from her. Uh, wear a mask. Do whatever you deem best. 
I think it's quite feasible, quite realistic, quite practical, quite achievable to protect the vulnerable 10% uh, as much as possible. Nothing's going to be perfect. We're all going to die at uh, at some point. But we can protect the vulnerable on an individual basis. But to force the other 90% into unemployment and poverty and drug overdoses and alcoholism and family violence and despair and suicide is is so destructive. And it's not stopping the spread of the virus. Mm-hmm. And we know that because now in uh, we're into November and we're having uh, we continue to have some COVID deaths, very small numbers. And again, to, to state the fact that these are very small numbers, right? In Alberta, uh, ten people die in a given week, but there's 490 people dying of other causes. So these are very small numbers. It's not ripping through society like the bubonic plague or like the Spanish flu. So why aren't we focusing our protection on the vulnerable? And I have yet to hear, uh, you know, any chief medical officer come up with uh, with a credible answer as to why we're not focusing protection on the vulnerable. Well, that's interesting because this Noel Gibney, the guy who created this letter in Alberta, <clears throat> he actually was a critical care specialist. Uh, and I don't know whether there was anything in that letter about protecting the vul- vulnerable, but I uh, think even though he retired in 2018, he probably has something to offer on that because that was part of his specialty. Anyways, um, I want to, I want to add one thing in the same way that uh, if I were to say uh, you need to be a lawyer in order to recognize a bad law. And if you're not a lawyer, you just don't have the authority to look at a law and you're not allowed to have an opinion about whether it's a good law or a bad law. Or if you do have an opinion, it's just not worthless because only lawyers can look at laws to determine if it's a good law or a bad law. People would say, well, no, uh, I as a citizen can look at the law and I can have an opinion whether it's good or bad. And I'm not, I'm not disinf- I'm entitled to vote on the law and, and certainly I can comment on the law. You don't need to be a lawyer for that. Uh, in the same way, you don't need to be a doctor to just look at government data, see that the COVID deaths are nowhere close to the Spanish flu or the 1957 Asian flu or the 1968 Hong Kong flu. You don't need to be a doctor to look at facts and see that the COVID deaths are not in the range of a real pandemic like 1918, 1957, 1968. The COVID deaths, in fact, are in the same range as an annual flu. That's not my opinion. That's the government's data. So you don't need to be a doctor to see that. You don't need to be a doctor to know that when you lock up people in their homes and when you prevent people from going to their synagogue, their mosque, their temple, their church, their 12-step program, when you're rendering that down into something that is vastly inferior by way of a a screen and a a Zoom or Skype encounter, that you're going to have mental health problems. And some of those mental health problems are going to turn into uh, suicides and other kinds of serious harm. You don't need to be a doctor to know that. So, you know, there's a bit of, uh, I think there's a bit of arrogance there on on the part of some of these doctors who, uh, if they think that they're uh, entitled to shape the laws of our country just because they're doctors, uh, I think they're sadly mistaken. Well, I didn't release the letter yet. I suppose we'll probably see it in the next few days. I'm interested to see if there's anything there in there about the tests, because we've been hearing so much about those PCR tests. And I think, uh, well, I, I have now confirmed that uh, the test in Alberta is the PCR test. That is the one using, and uh, they're using. And I think that 
someone you know had confirmed that that's what they're using to uh, determine the cause of death as well, isn't it? Is that what your understanding of it? The practice in uh, in most jurisdictions is that if somebody has COVID in their body at time of death, then that is the uh, that's listed as a cause of death, which again supports my assertion that the the actual lethality of COVID is within the range of the annual flu, because you've got uh, you've got vastly exaggerated numbers. And this is not me talking. This is public health officials in the United States and in Italy saying that this is how uh, COVID is reported uh, on uh, in terms of government data. Mm, yeah. Well, if but if the PCR test is used to basically make the judgment of whether they had COVID in their body, and they those tests are notoriously unreliable. I think they are talking like ninety percent false positives up, up, up to 90%. Yeah. Because they can because you can you can test positive on a PCR test by having remnants of a dead virus in your body and that's especially true with the higher cycles because this is based on how many cycles uh do you run amplify and, to look at it. Yeah. yeah. So you have the the New York Times and the National Post have run stories with medical professionals talking about how if you run more than 30 cycles you're going to get a lot of false positives and you should run no more than 30 cycles. And yet we have a lot of jurisdictions where they're running 35 cycles or, or 40 45 or 43 cycles. I saw out of that New York Times story, I think it was, that was, they're running it at 45. So greatly amplified. And uh, I mean, this the, the fear is that these, <clears throat> these tests are amplifying the numbers, you know, and they would be, if they are using the PCR tests here in Alberta to, determined cause of death or whether it's in the body of people who have died, <clears throat> excuse me, then uh, our death numbers could be skewed as well. So, I mean, this is not uh, boding well, I guess, you know, for confidence in the system. That's why I was no. saying I would like to well, see whether they talk about that in the letter. Remains to be seen. Well, this, the Center for Disease Control has stated publicly that, uh, you know, 6% of, of COVID deaths are uh, COVID alone. And uh, 94% are uh, people with one, two, three, four, five, six serious uh, underlying health conditions. It's the same data in Alberta. 97% of the COVID deaths in Alberta, people with one, two, three, or more serious underlying conditions. And so you get into the situation, okay, well, you know, he already had uh, heart disease and, and cancer and emphysema and diabetes. Uh, oh, and now he got COVID. Oh, well, let's put it down as a COVID death. Well, that's a little bit misleading because it that that's part of the fear mongering, right? Mm -hmm. Get everybody scared of the virus when the fact is that ninety percent, roughly ninety percent of the population, uh, has nothing to fear from COVID. Yes, well, I'm pretty sure that uh, most of them are. It seems anyway, because I mean, the the whole fear factor seems to be working with everybody. There's not a lot of people questioning what we should do. I I suppose they're amplifying it with these doctors coming out and. Uh, one day it's 70, the next day it's 74, and then it goes up to 174. <laughs> it looks to me like the media is definitely fanning the flames on this one. Uh, but I'm well, the, the media, motor, the media benefits, huh? the media benefits from this. I mean, the more, uh, the more, the more fear mongering the media does, uh, the more clicks and the more advertising revenue. Uh, so media depend on uh, fear mongering and sensationalism to stay in business because media, uh, formerly, it used to be that that part of their revenues was the individual, um, the subscriptions, right? Mm -hmm. If you you 
get your news get your newspaper delivered to your home. Although even 50 years ago, those uh, home deliveries of papers was uh, maybe half of their revenues, or maybe one third, or maybe two thirds. But even even back in those days, the advertising revenue is crucial for the media, and uh, and that's one thing that has not changed. I mean, obviously the the print media seem to be dying a slow death, but now everything's online. But where where does CTV get its revenues from? To name, I could name any number of, of of media outlets. Right, they get their revenue from advertising. How do you sell advertising? Well, you tell your perspective, your your car dealership or your whoever, whatever products or services that you're selling. You tell them, you know, if you give us uh, if you give us you know ten thousand dollars, we're going to get you this online exposure. And businesses, when they advertise. It's a calculation. The business is thinking, okay, if I plunk down ten thousand in advertising, I'm going to increase my revenues by more than ten thousand, right? Because uh, otherwise, it doesn't make sense. So the media are pushing the fear. Um, I think in part because that's what that's what brings the advertising dollars in the door. That sounds like a conspiracy theory to me. <laughs> no, that's just business. That's just. I business. know, but the businesses are these, having to shut yeah. down. So I mean, they're closing down all these businesses. So uh, nobody's going to be around to advertise. Uh, anyways, we won't go too far down that little rabbit hole today. Okay, so we'll leave that a little alone for a little bit. Let's just get, quickly get back to Manitoba here, uh, because of course uh, they're going full tilt there. Uh, you guys are planning something. You got some something in the works here. Are you uh, going to take a make a move on this? We are gearing up for uh, court challenges in uh, Alberta and Manitoba and possibly other provinces uh, because if the politicians and chief medical officers keep on violating our rights and freedoms uh, without a medical and scientific basis, then it's not justified and it's time to fight back. And people might have said, why have you waited so long? Well, it takes a long time to put the court papers together. Uh, it takes a long time to gather up the data. It takes a long time, takes many, 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 many hours on the part of many people to put together uh, a good, strong case. And, you know, of course, anybody could just, you know, slap slap something together in, in a matter of hours and file it. Uh, but we want to have a court action that's going to have a high likelihood of winning. So we want to get all of our ducks in a row and get everything lined up mm -hmm. properly. Well, you had mentioned they're doing this without a, a medical or scientific basis. Um, of course. Not a strong enough one in our Right. View. And what yeah. about a legal basis? That's the one I always keep harping. I mean, I know I'm not a lawyer, but according to you, I'm allowed to have an opinion on that. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. Uh, do they have a legal basis? For but them? I mean, the, the, the law and the science, of course, how they, they're intertwined together on these sorts of things because the tests that the government has to meet is firstly, that there is a pressing and substantive objective. And I would make the argument that when you look at COVID deaths vis-a-vis -vis deaths from other sources, and you've got in Canada, uh, COVID deaths being, uh, you know, one, uh, being 1% or a fraction of 1% or 2% of deaths, you're not looking at a virus that has any significant impact on life expectancy. Uh, when you consider the fact, uh, it's been written about in the National Post that the uh, average lifespan of somebody going into a nursing home in Ontario is 12 months. That's average. 
Uh, some of these people live for many years. Uh, some die within a few months. Average lifespan of somebody, once they've entered a nursing home, the on average, they will be dead within 12 months. 80% of COVID cases in Canada are in nursing homes. So the fact is, you can call facts callous, uh, although I like what Ben Shapiro says, uh, my facts don't care about your feelings. Uh, call it callous if you want. But the, the fact is that COVID does not have a big impact on life expectancy. So where is the pressing and substantial goal in the first place when the COVID deaths are, again, you know, 1%, 2% of, of total deaths in the country? So that's the first hurdle that the government has to clear then they have to clear the hurdle that the violation of our rights and freedoms are rationally connected to saving lives. That's something that has not been demonstrated. The onus is on the government to demonstrate that, that there's a causal connection. Then they have to demonstrate that they violated our rights and freedoms as little as possible in order to achieve the objective. That's going to be another big hurdle. Um, and then lastly, and most importantly, they have to demonstrate that the lockdowns are doing more good than harm. And the onus is on the government to prove that the lockdowns are doing more good than harm. That's the case that the government will have to meet. All right. Good. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, I think we'll end there. Uh, that's we're getting pretty close to our hour here. Thanks a lot, John. Uh, well, we hope to talk to you next week. Uh, this was episode 45, Justice with John Carpe. Again, thank you. Talk to you next week, Kevin.